Hi, this is Paul. I've been on Zoom all day long, and the last thing I really feel like doing is doing a video, but I know that I want to do this video, and if I don't do this video now, it might never get made. So we're going to do the video. One of the things I think about a lot is what we mean by this funny word, spirit. How it's meant different things. Not, not Again, this is so complex to talk about, but how... Even, even the thinking we do, we, we don't even know how others thought because we've only been able to think like we think, if that makes any sense. Maybe it's tired, I should just go home, but I, I really want to make this video, so maybe we'll see how much of this video I make. So one of the things I think about a lot is, if you'll notice, you listen to Jordan Peterson talk about animating spirits, you look at my conversation with Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke, uh, my second conversation with Jonathan Peugeot that I, I probably want to revisit at some time is our conversation about angels and demons and spirits. And this, of course, has come up since Hermes has entered the corner. And so we, we really have to think about not just this word. We have to pay attention to how we use it. And we have to pay attention to what it means among us because... If you read the New Testament, you see, again, I've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus the exorcist. There's a lot going on there that people have sort of dealt with shabbily, especially in the modern period, sort of dismissing things that they read in the Gospels as archaic ignorance or things like that. Now, when I talk about the recession of modernity, I know a bunch of you push back, and my favorite illustration of this is Mono Lake. And so... Here are um, a bunch of people at Mono Lake looking at all the little animalitos in Mono Lake, this very, very salty lake on the other side of the Sierra. If you go all the way through Yosemite, up over Tioga Pass, down this really amazing road down to the eastern Sierra, and then there's this lake. And for years, Companies and water districts have been pulling water out of the feeder streams that fed the lake, meaning that the lake was no longer getting that fresh water. It's a, it's a dead end, and so the only way water leaves that lake is evaporation. But with all of the feeder streams getting water taken from it, the lake level went down, and when the lake level went down, they had all these tufa. That's what they call them, these tufa formations. And they're quite beautiful. And there's a lot of, if you look for photography around Mono Lake, they're quite beautiful. But basically what is happening in our culture is that the culture is changing fast. And language is changing. And so when someone who, like Jordan Peterson, is talking about animating spirits and things like this, hmm, and this is this is why I've talked about school spirit, because school spirit is a use of the word spirit that is highly colloquial, and all of us sort of know what we're talking about when we talk about school spirit. But if you pay more attention to it, you begin to notice that, oh, there's there's a lot more going on there. Now, there's another there are other forms of language, psychological language, sociological language. I have a friend who teaches sociology at a local university, he has a PhD in sociology, and he does all kinds of things. And I remember talking to him about probably 15 years ago, and he said, yeah, sociology is dead. 
And it's like, well, okay, you can take that argument up in the comments section, but people imagined 40, 50 years ago that sociology was going to, you know, shine a light on this world. And, and then, of course, you have all of these imaginations that psychology or sociology and all this, all this science will somehow dispel the darkness and enlightenment will reign, off we'll go. And it hasn't happened. So if I say school spirit, people say one thing, but when I talk about these spirits, people then begin in a sort of, in a, in a way of imagining all sorts of ghostly or wispy or demonic or angelic. And then all of that, all of that modern skepticism, post-enlightenment skepticism kicks in. And once we sort of imagine, C.S. Lewis talks about this with respect to the devil, once we sort of imagine someone with a pitchfork and and a tail and someone on you know sell, selling deviled meats or things like that in a can, it's so easily dismissed, which is why Screw Tape uh, C.S. Lewis wrote Screw Tape Letters. Now, part of the problem that I have when I talk about these things is that I get difficulty from both sides. The traditional religionists around us that maintain a healthy respect for the spiritual world, I'm using that now that language on one side of the register, when they hear me talking about school spirit and using the same word, they get nervous. Because over the last 500 years, they've seen churches under attack by the great process of demythologization and you can look at Rudolf Boltman and a whole bunch of things that have happened in the last few centuries of of setting that whole imaginary away and leading to what we call in in Charles Taylor's words words the buffered self and stories of demonic possession possession uh, are, are sort of, well, these were cured by psychology. Hmm. Yeah, well, no, I'm on, I'm on the side that says, well, I'm sure that, uh, I'm on the side that says this is all pretty complex. And when I'm working with a certain group of people and I hear a lot of stories about demonic possession and oppression, I approach it fairly skeptically. I do. Because, yeah, I'm going to have to see something that lights me, that helps me know that this isn't, merely psychological that's i don't have skepticism I, I don't have skepticism about the power of the spiritual world but it's again when i say it that way a certain a certain group of audience say oh, okay paul paul isn't playing paul isn't trying to demythologize us well i'm not but i also want to afford a language afford a language that is actually working to understand not just, let's say, a corner of the spiritual world in the cases of really dramatic spiritual possession that require exorcisms even today. And those things can get all their own clicks on YouTube and everybody can either point fingers at the crazy religious people or say, aha, see, that's the it's the modernists that are ignorant. I think we have to continue to look at these words and how they're used to understand how spirit 
and spirits work in this world. The recession of modernity is, is it simply a religionist motivation to reintroduce an archaic form of speech and thought? Is there an advantage in truth-seeking to reassert this old form or language and thought to the discourse? And that's my question because, so while I'm in that sense over on the conservative traditionalist side of things where I'm not skeptical about the devil and his angels, if I can say it that way. I'm at the same time have the question, well, Jordan Peterson using the word animating spirit and all of that, does, does that really add something to the language or does he just get a lot of religious people excited that, well, maybe we're not losing or maybe we're even winning? Well, I guess I should put this full screen. There we go. That's pretty. Now, algo is a funny thing. And I, I watch a diversity of videos, not just corner videos and not just tech videos. And I, I watch a bunch of things. And Algo, for some reason, served me up this video from a channel I had never heard of before. Why Chinese are growing anxious in the danger of declining China. Now, this might be sort of Peter Zan stuff. I watch Peter Zan sometimes. Um, but Algo serves this up to me, and what I got out of this video was not so much some in information about China, which I did. This apparently is a career reporter who has served in China for a very long time, and I found his comments very reasonable. But the truth is, what on earth do I know about China? Like, nothing. I've never been there, and China is old, and China is huge. And China is massive. And so when it comes to people's hot takes on China, I am a babe in the woods. I am a, I am a newbie. I, I am subject to colonization and infestation and, and possession and oppression and just about everything you can imagine because I don't even know enough fake news to tell fake news from real news. And I've got zero personal, very little personal context or relationship to figure out what on earth is going on with respect to China. But that was not my interest in this video. It's always interesting with the channel. This channel has a little less than 20,000 subscribers. Video's out a few days and it's got 47 views. So obviously Algo has taken it for a ride and decided to put it in front of me and to see what I would do with it. But I don't think Algo would quite have an idea of what I would do with it. Now, when you listen to the little parts of this video that I'm going to play for you, I want you to think about the far older version of the Ian McGilchrist thesis, because I think in many ways, Pascal's spirit of finesse and spirit of geometry very much sort of map onto the, the master and his emissary brains, those two brains. Because we're trying to figure out what to do with China. We talk about it as if we're thinking about a person. And this goes all the way back, of course, to Plato's Republic, because Plato's trying to figure out some things. And he says, well, what is justice? Well, it's, if we want to figure out what justice is in a human being, a human being is very small, let's blow a human being up to a whole city. And maybe if we can find out what a just city looks like, we can find out what a just person looks like. 
And that move from individual to principality, now I'm using them so that New Testament language, that move from one to the other is actually something that we do all the time. And most of the time when we do it, we're so comfortable with it and familiar with it. It is, in fact, the application of the spirit of finesse that we don't think anything about anything about it. All of our sense-making, our calibration, and as sort of where our dead reckoning as we're listening to someone talk about something we know nothing about, we're evaluating it and monitoring it all in terms of the persons we know. And all of that information gets filtered through what we know about human beings and what we know about persons. And then some things might sound right and good and true, and other things might sound fishy and wrong, and we don't believe it. And of course, all of this, I was listening to, I've got to go back and listen to, I guess there was a quite a noteworthy live stream with Luke. He started out talking about Hal, and I was you know trolling him a little bit in the comments, but then I had stuff to do to have my outstanding conversation with the Reverend Nate... Um, I can't even think of his last name. I'm so tired after all of the yakking. The Reverend Nate, I'm now going through, I can, Vendenen, which is in the No Wait, No Ads. Yeah, look at that, Grifton. Go to the No Wait, No Ads. You can watch it right now. If you wait a few days, maybe even a day or two, it'll be on their full channel. So there you have it. But I want to do some clipping of it because... My conversation with Reverend Nate Vendenen is just the kind of conversation that I put on my channel that hardly anybody watches. And I think, no, this is the most important stuff I'm doing with this channel. And Nate and I really had a good time talking. And I think we covered important ground, both for the Christian Reformed Church and the church at large in Christianity in North America. But anyway, how did I get sidetracked into that? Oh, so ADHD. All of this stuff, all of the, the tools that we use to evaluate what we can't know, we borrow from personhood. And I think this is part of Verveke's relevance realization where our biases and our capacity to intuit and make sense of are deeply connected. But they're exapted, they're built on all of our understanding and conversation with people, even if the kind of thing like China we're trying to analyze, to analyze is a foreign culture. And the you know the thing about foreign cultures is they do things different out there. So let's, let's, let's first pick it up at the beginning of the video because he does a nice little teaser clip up front and then we're going to drop into the middle of the video. So, well, let's go their kind of innermost thoughts and of course uh my settings are wrong and youtube dropped me off where i left off instead of where i wanted to be which was the beginning so let's go if xi jinping could successfully take taiwan and occupy taiwan and drive his red flag limousine you know over the scorched and kind of smoking avenues of central taipei with the kind of the communist party's flag flying from buildings and PLA troops lining the avenue, then he would undoubtedly enter the pantheon of China's great leaders because he would have finished and won a final victory in the Chinese civil war that Chairman Mao failed to end because he didn't finish off the regime that went into exile in Taiwan. So yes, he, he becomes up there with, you know, the Qianlong emperor or the Yongzhang emperor, some of the great, you know, expansionist Qing dynasty Emperor. Now notice what he's doing right now. I, I, I have absolutely no reason to believe he's wrong about this. In fact, it all sounds quite right to me about it. But notice how, especially with a dictatorship, 
where the dictator and the nation sort of come together. Now, a little bit later in, in this video, he talks about how even in the single, in the, in the Communist Party, a big part of the culture of the Communist Party is they want to be the vanguard of the people. So they actually care about public opinion. They're not the kind of tyrannical dictators that care nothing for public opinion, but there was so much interesting stuff in this video. I really enjoyed it. But just, again, the point of this, I want you to keep Plato's Republic in mind, is from the, the individual to the principality, and back and forth we go, back and forth we go. And what language is best used for this? It's like the spirit of the dictator and the spirit of the nation. But now China has a very old spirit. And so will this dictator be in line with all of these other ancient, great, renowned emperors of this very ancient civilization? Hmm. Uh, but if he, if he tries it and loses, then he's, you know, then he goes down in history as one of the worst Chinese rulers of all time. So it's a big old bet. This is a conversation with David Rennie, a Chinese. Okay, and so then you get the, now I'm gonna jump into some of the places that I think are salient for the points that I'm making. Well, let's hit this, let's hit this point that I thought was a good one, because I thought it was a good one. I think it's quite interesting because it sounds similar to the responses I get when talking to Russia scholars and Russia watchers who often say that in theory, Putin wouldn't need to care about the public opinion because he has this robust repression machine and it's not like elections can change anything. But in practice, he actually enormously cares and is kind of obsessed with the public opinion. So I guess it's, it's sort of similar uh, in China. Yeah. And we see, you know, I mean, going back to your first question about the state of the economy, I mean, the propaganda machine uh, you know, in, in the journals which are designed to instruct party members about the line to take, you know, things like the People's Daily, there are endless kind of pieces by the propaganda bureau of the Central Committee saying, you know, we must increase our work on public opinion guidance. Uh, we must ensure that the economy uh, is just discussed and reported and analysed in ways that reflect positive energy and do not allow kind of hostile foreign forces to you know, try to lower the morale. Now, if you listen to this and you think about this, what, what is the government trying to do? They're trying to marshal the spirit of the people. It's all spiritual. And that's why I was thinking about that. And then I had started listening to this and I thought, wow, this is an interesting video. I was just listening to it because I wanted to learn more about China. And the more I listened to this video, I thought, boy, this has a lot to do with why this spirit language really works and what these spirits are. Now, again, some of you are said, but, the, but those aren't, well, what on earth do you know those are? Those aren't things like my lens cap. They're between people, they're transjective. We might say, well, they're intersubjective, but I think intersubjective is actually a little bit deceiving because again, in our modernist vocabulary, subjective is always sort of um, non-objective. But the intersubjective means that there's actually a lot going on this and with this. And in fact, it's not just what all the Chinese alive today are thinking. It's what all the Chinese alive today are thinking about 
all the dead Chinese and all the maps that, all the internal first draft maps that they have inherited from previous generations, on and on, back and back, with all of the cultural legacy and heritage and historiography and all the way back, this stuff matters. All of the Chinese people and people in the financial sector, you know, get memos telling them not to talk down uh, the economy. And there's a lot of language in there about public opinion guidance because, you know, I mean, all leaders would rather not have to kind of, you know, hit people with sticks to, 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 to govern. The Chinese Communist Party is also, it, it, it is absolutely concerned with being a mass movement. It likes to be on the side of the majority. And I think that one of the... Uh... Now, this reminded me of my conversation with, um, with Guy Landau, the wrestler. So you have the book, which is sort of like the Communist Party, and then you have the people. And so they want to engineer this show so that, you know, do the kayfabe so that, well, they want to... They want to follow the masses a little bit, but they really want to lead them. And you can just see the dynamics working. And again, the language of spirit is is really important in that. One of the sort of aspects of governance in this country that is a challenge if you are a sort of Western liberal, and you know, I work for a, a, a news magazine that is un, unashamedly a Western liberal news magazine. One of the challenges is that very often, Chinese policy is aimed at trying to ensure it's a kind of utilitarian structure. It's designed to try and deliver a certain set of public goods chosen and selected by the Communist Party to a majority of the people. And so, you know, they will they know that people like the fact that Chinese cities are amazingly safe. And that's because they are very tightly policed. And there's security cameras everywhere. And But, you know, it is, you know, you can walk down the streets of Beijing at 2 a.m. in a way that would be unwise in New York or London or, or, or Berlin. And that's an achievement. It's aimed at the kind of the majority who will accept the trade-offs in terms of privacy and uh, policing to live in a safe, orderly, stable society. We saw this with the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic, zero COVID, which was, you know, I was here for the entire of the pandemic. I was stuck in China for, you know, nearly three years. It was at times unbelievably suffocating and frustrating and brutal if certainly if you're a westerner but it was a numbers game it was aimed at ensuring that a majority of chinese at any one time could live more or less normal lives albeit with lots of testing and intrusions but that a minority now again we're looking at part of where this spirit language helps is looking at things that are too large for us to manage mentally 1.4 billion people well there's a mood, there's a spirit, there's something working through. Now, what he says is not the end of it. It's more complex than that always, but that's what you have to do when you try to distill a far too large word down into a tiny little description that you're giving to people who you don't know over something like YouTube or the internet. Majority people would be locked in their homes for weeks on end in unlucky places so that the majority of China would be okay. And you know, a lot of the framing of social questions by the Communist Party is about how the vast majority of law-abiding patriotic citizens support this or that policy, and only a tiny minority who have been misled by often, you know, hostile foreign forces 
are, you know, in disagreement. And they would apply that to, uh, you know, you know, they say that the vast majority of Taiwanese would like to be reunited with the mainland. The vast majority of Chinese support, you know, the Communist Party. They're very proud of these kind of data points. This is a majoritarian, utilitarian system. Uh, I mean, one final quick example is, you know, outsiders, including me, find it very shocking the way that the the, the government under Xi Jinping has uh, imposed kind of coercive assimilation on you know minorities like the Uyghurs or uh, you know the Hui Muslims or, or others. Um, you know, Mongolian language, you know, being basically eliminated from schools. And to us, you know, that treatment of a minority is an unacceptable trade-off if your goal is national unity. But for the Chinese Communist Party, their their view is, you know, we need a peaceful, stable China. Ninety-something percent of the country are Han Chinese, so this is just going to be how it works. And and you know, the very very strict, intense security and kind of surveillance in Xinjiang is popular with lots and lots of. Chinese tourists who love going to Xinjiang and dressing up as Uyghurs. And uh, and they will say, you know, oh, this place used to be really dangerous. There used to be kind of bombs and knife attacks. And now it's super safe. It's lovely. Great. You know, come and have a holiday in Xinjiang. And so that majoritarian um, uh, kind of project is absolutely uh, the goal of the Communist Party. The problem is... And I, I found that majoritarian spirit to be so fascinating as, as he's doing, contrasting it with, let's say, a Western liberal spirit that has this uh, this value for minorities. It's the price that minorities uh, have to pay, and they could be an ethnic minority, they could be feminists, they could be gay students with a LGBT group on campus that gets shut down. They could be an unlucky minority whose apartment hasn't been finished and they paid for it, and they go and petition, but they must be crushed and silenced and censored because it's upsetting the majority. So you're absolutely right that the party is very concerned with public opinion and with being on the sort of the side of the the broad majority. Um, you know, and of course, one of the things that totalitarian dictatorships really major, and you can see this is South Korea, is exactly the kinds of things that school spirit emphasizes and we're going to have parades and we're going to have bands and we're going to have banners and we're going to have so say we all this is what we do this is us if you're not part of us too bad um we'll we'll make it even worse on you so it's just fascinating the way these spirits develop now now we're getting to the part of the video that that really caught my eye with this this is not north korea this is not um you know sort of stalin's soviet union uh, but the price for that majoritarian project is that minorities, some of whom are just unlucky uh, and you know in the wrong place at the wrong time, they will be repressed without mercy. So I wanted to use something that we've talked about to segue into uh, the next topic, and that's um, talking about all the problems that China is dealing with and maybe the the, the rising. Uh, discontent of, of the public. There's this quite common uh, narrative or theory that's often mentioned by Western analysts and uh, officials that you've mentioned in, in your last episode of, of Drum Tower. Uh, and that's that maybe the Chinese government could try to um, take 
the attention of the public away from these internal issues by focusing on a more aggressive foreign policy and and specifically that maybe if it would get really bad it could try to launch an invasion of Taiwan to sort of stoke the the, the nationalism and and find a solution that way and in your last episode, you quoted a memo from a four-star uh, U.S. general who said that my gut, to, to quote him, my gut tells me that we will fight in 2025, talking about Chinese invasion of Taiwan, potential invasion of Taiwan. And um, using that quote, after making an episode asking whether Chinese people want that, what does your gut tell you about all of this? So I think I'm less alarmed than that four-star Air Force. Now, now notice again the what we're doing to make sense, or listen to my gut, and this is what I think they're going to do. What am I? What what is the analysis that I'm using? Well, it's it's this movement. General, I'm also less alarmed than I'm mean, actually. I got a, in in some ways a more significant figure who was also, uh, you know, we played a clip of him in the episode that you're talking about. Um, was H.R. McMaster? He used to be. National Security Advisor, uh, and is a kind of very thoughtful former general who wrote some interesting books of history about kind of failures of strategy uh, in previous American uh, wars, yeah, Vietnam. Um, so McMaster, we played this clip of McMaster talking in Congress about how as the Chinese economy slows and the policy mistakes by the party look obvious, then you know they're going to amp up the nationalism, they're going to whip up the nationalism above all around Taiwan. Um, I don't completely buy in fact i don't buy this idea well i don't think we're gonna have a, a, a war next year uh and i also don't really think that a war to take back taiwan is a sort of safe enough self-contained operation that would be a kind of useful distraction i mean you know we have seen dictatorships and 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 unfree regimes launch wars before i mean you know, the argentine junta invaded the Falkland Islands uh, to try and distract people from their kind of discontents. Uh, arguably, Putin very successfully invaded and occupied Crimea in 2014, uh, you know, and that, you know, gave him a huge boost in his popularity. And so, you know, these kind of adventures can, you know, there, there is history. People do these things. But invading Taiwan would not be like kind of occupying Crimea. Invading Taiwan has been described to me by one Pentagon planner as you know, the largest amphibious operation uh, since the Allied invasion of Normandy in D-Day during the Second World War, but more difficult because the English Channel was 23 miles wide or whatever it is. Uh, the, the Taiwan Straits are four times wider and very deep and very rough. And so it's an unbelievably risky operation. And so point one, if you were looking to distract a discontented public, then uh, invading and trying to conquer and occupy an island of 24 million people, which has a kind of theoretical American security backing over 100 miles of rush of rough deep sea, that's a that's a big distraction. That's like betting the entire Communist Party on that war. And so that is that is, I think, uh, a reason to assume that until they feel they have no choice or until they are confident the Americans would not come. Uh, then it would be an unbelievably risky thing to do. Another reason that I don't think 
you know, my gut doesn't tell me we fight in 2025, to quote that general, is the pain, the economic pain, the human pain, the difficulties would be so great that I think you would need to see the propaganda machine here getting people kind of into a frenzy, uh, getting people, you know, really stoked up about the idea that China is being humiliated, that the Americans are attacking China, that the future of China lies in, you know, ending the division of, you know, the mainland from Taiwan. And, you know, there's language like that in, in Taiwan policy papers, but that's not the main thrust of messaging right now. The main thrust of messaging right now is all about getting the economy back on track. It's about prosperity. It's about, um, you know, it's about, uh, you know, uh, you know, the one, you know, if you watch state, you know, the state evening news, the Xinwen Liambo, the, you know, the, 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 the news that, you know, hundreds of millions of ordinary Chinese watch every night, you know, yes, there are shots of aircraft carriers and fighter jets and missiles. They like to talk about how strong the PLA is. And yes, they talk about, um, you know, how a tiny minority of splitters from Taiwan must, you know, be careful. But look at their response to the most recent Taiwan election, where the party that they didn't like, the candidate that they didn't like, won the presidential election, Lai Qingde, um, giving the party that China does not like, that it sees as a kind of splittist pro-independence party, giving them uh, another term, uh, a third presidential term in a row. Okay, you can watch you can watch the rest of the thing. But again, notice how... Notice how our sense making works and notice how we instinctively and intuitively treat China as a as a person of sorts, as a principality, as it, it runs by the rules. And again, this is not a perfect thing, but it's actually not a bad thing either, because if if this type of reasoning didn't work, we probably would have abandoned it a long time ago. We just go back and forth and back and forth. And once you begin to see this, you really see it a lot of places. And what I think this sets up for us is sort of this dialogic, um, dialogos, manner of analysis between spirits. It's finesse and geometry. And so I go back to this video that I, I made about deconstruction, where you have deconstruction that glorifies and deconstruction that that desecrates and and we just watch us going back and forth and back and forth now now fancy hitchpin 8675 in a video that i just released recently left this comment systems to repurpose a quote from homer simpson the cause of and solution to all of life's problems and so that's sort of how we manage these systems. We go back and forth with them between finesse and geometry, finesse and geometry. Then we'll look at data to see, well, is, is this true? So, well, if they were really ramping up, we're sort of mind reading them. If they were really ramping up to invade Taiwan, these are probably the messages that they would be putting out with respect to their propaganda. Because again, that, that little communist party that sees itself as the head, the vanguard of the nation, they need to prepare the body to fight. If they don't prepare the body to fight, they will be in trouble. And China's been having some, some difficult economic problems. If you watch the first part of the video, he'll, he'll sort of pull back a lot of the more 
uh, dramatic and sensational YouTube videos that have been going on about China's collapse. And he talks about the fact that, well, here's more data. It does a little bit of deconstructing. Well, Chinese, for m many Americans, a if they have a $400 automobile repair bill, you know, will really be in trouble. But Chinese people save money like crazy. Now, of course, if they're saving money, but if, you know, I can't say that I know nothing of the Chinese people. I know Chinese immigrants in in California, of which there are many. Uh, Chinese immigrants, they, they won't just try to save money. They will try to save wealth in a diversity of ways <laughs> because they have a lot of distrust about governments and money and all of these things. And so they might be saving gold and jewels and buying real estate. And, and I remember years ago when I first got here, there was... We might, there was talk about selling this piece of property to a family that had owned the other half of the block. They really wanted this. They were developers and they were going to build for us a new church in a more desirable area of town, all of this stuff. But most of our members lived here. They're like, we don't want to drive to church. We like being able to be real close to our church. It would have been interesting if that had actually happened. I have no idea what on earth would have happened, but. What what's interesting in this is that I remember we had one real estate lawyer in the church who was in negotiation with these, and he said, "You have to remember that these, this, and it was a Chinese family that was doing this. These are people who work on the very long term. We Americans were always just looking at the now, but these, the this Chinese family that's been in, probably in the country longer than my ancestors, they take a very long view with this stuff. So." You know, if we decide to sell 25, 30 years from now, they'll probably be interested even then still because they're planning, they're, they're planning the death of my church. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful, nice people. I wouldn't say it that way. But now, so now let's talk about, okay, so, so we're using the spirit language and we're using like the spirit in us and the spirit in the principality and we're doing the sense making between the two. Now what psychology and what science tends to be is a, is a deconstructing discipline. It takes, it moves between the spirit of geometry and the spirit of finesse. It goes back and forth between them, between the impersonal machine and the personal. And the personal is, Jordan Peterson talked about this in the Roman Catholic thing, and others have noted it too, that you get to a certain point and you just can't keep doing science. And if you, if you pay attention to people who like to talk science as idle, and science as God, if you really start to push at them with respect to this, what they have is eschatology. As they look at the asymptote and they say, someday we'll get to zero. And if you look at Sam's conversation with Drew Johnson, the answer is probably not. Probably not. The world seems to be the kind of thing that the reason we developed statistics and the reason we we realized that there's too much stuff to track and the, the world is both too big and too small for us to actually get our minds around it. And so we use statistics to try to get answers that are good enough. The reason we do that is because we don't know if there's a bottom. And this is part of the reason, well, say that's the God of the gaps. No, not really. That's the God of the deep. 
that we might be able to hold our breath and get a little bit further down. But the further we go down, the more we realize we haven't hit bottom yet. And it's not only the fact that we keep get things get smaller and smaller, and there's still smallness to be discovered, but it gets strange down there. And the same when we get up large, it gets strange up there. And so we default back to the spirit of finesse, which is a dialogical mode, even while we're doing deconstruction and finding little mechanisms along the way and say, oh, that's cool. Look at that little mechanism. Look at that little mechanism. But that mechanism is in conversation with these other mechanisms. I'm going to include, maybe I'll include a little bit of my conversation with Nate in this because it was just such an outstanding conversation. It's in No Wait, No Ads. You can see it right now if you really can't wait. If you just can wait a few days, it'll be on the whole channel. So, yeah, there's a little grift for you, but um, no need to pay anything. It'll it'll be on the whole channel. Don't worry. The whole conversation. I was I was looking at some other things, and I picked up Carlisle again, and he's talking about and, and again, when Carlyle, it's 1840 that he's dealing with, it's a very interesting time. But Carlyle, of course, is in some ways dealing with this as he's thinking about the hero and thinking about gods and all of this. First, he talks about, you know, the machine of the universe. That's sort of the this image we projected onto the universe as our machines got more and more. We were increasingly impressed by our machines, by our technology. Well, it is strange enough, this old Norse view of nature, different enough from what we believe of nature. And again, 1840, you're kind of in the, in the grips of nature as machine, the clockwork universe. We hadn't yet hit <coughs> quantum physics and things hadn't gotten really strange yet. We were still sort of in the Newtonian imaginary and nature was a great machine. We have delved as far as well, it's finding little mechanisms. And in our imagination, we thought, all there is is mechanisms. Oh, okay. Whence it certainly came, no one would like to be compelled to say very minutely. One thing we may say, it came from the thoughts of Norsemen. From the thought, above all, of the first Norse man who had an original power of thinking. The first Norse man of genius, as we should call him. Innumerable men had passed across the universe with a dumb, vague wonder, such as the very animals that may feel, or with a painful, fruitless, inquiring wonder, such as a man only, such as men only feel. Is that, okay, here's this. Here's this wonder that it's a little beneath how far we can dive down. Or with painful, fruitless, inquiring wonder as such men only feel, till the great thinker came, the original man, the seer, who shaped, spoke, and thought, capital T, awakes the slumbering, the slumbering capacity of all into thought, capital T. It is ever the way with the thinker, capital T, the spiritual hero, capital H. What he says, all men were not far from saying, we're longing to say, it's such a poetic, all men were not far from saying, we couldn't quite reach it, but not far from saying, we're longing to say, the thoughts of all starts up as from painful enchanted sleep round his thought, answering to it, yes, even so. 
Carlyle has such a strange manner of sort of poetic prose. Joyful to men as the dawning of from night, is it not indeed the awakening for them from no being into being, from death into life? Still we honor such a man, call him poet, genius, and so forth. But these wild men, he was a very magician, a worker of miraculous, unexpected blessing for them, a prophet, a god. Thought once awakened does not again slumber. How true is that? Unfolds itself into a system of thought, spirit of geometry reaching out. Grows in man after man, generation after generation, till its full stature is reached, and such system of thought can grow no farther, but must give place to another. Think of Kuhn's history of scientific revolution. We get to a point and we realize, this is where we are right now, our systems are no longer sufficient. I'll get into that in... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my, a clip from my conversation with Nate in this. Boy, when am I going to get home tonight? For the Norsemen, the man now named Odin, the chief Norse god, we fancy, was such a man, a teacher and a captain of soul and body, a hero of worth immeasurable, admiration for whom transcending the known bounds became adoration. He was not the power of articulate thinking and many other powers as yet miraculous? Has he not the power of articulate thinking and many other powers as yet miraculous? So with boundless gratitude would the rude Norse heart feel. Has he not solved for them the Sphinx enigma of this universe, given assurance to them of their own destiny there? By him they know what they should have to do here what to look for hereafter. Existence has become articulate, melodious by him. He first has made life alive. He may be called this Odin, this origin of Norse mythology, or Odin or whatever name the first North thinker bore while he was a man among men. Such an interesting idea was, did Odin have his roots in some ancient man? And the story then, it's interesting the way stories grow, especially in different cultures. His view of the universe once promulgated, a like view starts into being in all minds, grows, keeps ever growing while it continues credible here. In all minds it lay, it lay written, but invisibly as in sympathetic ink. At his word, it starts into visibility in all. Nay, in every epoch of the world, the great event, parent of all others, is it, it, is it not the arrival of a thinker in the world? And you see McGilchrist, this back and forth between the hemispheres, making sense of the world, getting it down, getting it down, keeping the eye out, looking abroad. And again, we are a moment like that. And back to the topic of this video, I think that's again why spirit is a word that has utility. I wanted to switch gears a little bit sure. in the last half hour here um, into one of 
into a little bit more philosophy and some of the things you like to talk about on your okay. corner. Um, so my father has been diagnosed with Parkinson's and Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he's struggling with that. And um and his, my mother will watch this and she'll be sorry too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's doing okay for now. He's doing okay. He's still living on his own. He's still like yeah. Um, but it's it's a progressive disease, as you know. Uh but his doctor is this guy named Dr. Espe. And Dr. Espe wrote a book in which he wrote Parkinson's doesn't exist. So my dad's Parkinson's doctor doesn't believe that Parkinson's exists. And he's a neurologist at the University of Cincinnati Medical System. And this is interesting, Paul, because I think that what he's, what he's scratching at is what we scratch at in this little corner all the time, is what's the relationship between the, um, the metaphorical world, the symbolic world, and the world of like what I can get my hands on, what I can touch, what I can feel. And so in this book, I can see like, I can see that he should have done what I did and had a philosophy degree as well as a science degree. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I could see him grasping at this, like we have this construct called Parkinson's and we have these patients who have these things like tremors in their hands and um, and eventually it's a progressive disease and, and we can mark kind of the stages. But, but on another level, it's an elusive thing. Like we dig into the brain and we, and we dig into the genetics and, and as much as we want to say with certainty, you have Parkinson's because you have these um, plaques that are destroying your neurons. We run the experiment and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and and so his sol provocative solution in this book is we might have to kind of reject the label because the label's getting us in trouble. Like our, this, and he doesn't have the language for it, but you do. And that's the thing, like uh, this, uh, you know, this, this thing called Parkinson's, which exists in the world, like Jonathan Peugeot says, Santa Claus exists too. Like it's the same, uh, it's that same kind of thing. And there is an existence to it, but, but it's starting to not um, not connect anymore. And uh, yeah, I, but I, I think this, like, what's the relationship? And so Espe's book, he goes in this direction of basically, like, I'm just going to dismiss all myth is myth, right? Like the world of gods, the world of where Parkinson's exists, like all of that is myth. And I'm just going to stick to scientific what can i investigate and yeah. then i learned that actually we don't know much about brain biology at all um and and then i want to push back and say but actually that what you're dismissing there's truth there too right like c.s lewis there's yeah. christianity is the only true myth like there's uh, um but it I think I bring him out because he's a doctor it, it, just to say that lots of people are wrestling with the meaning crisis, so to speak. Like, yes. Lots of people are wrestling with this. Like, it, you know, we have these theories of the world, but how do they relate to the actual world and, and are any of them true? And I don't know if there's anything in what I just said that you don't know. No, I'm well, I, 
that that is i mean it's so difficult to talk about these things because part of the question is how to talk about them and as you know you and i both know that when you're actually dealing with what when i say regular people i don't mean necessarily a strata of people i mean a plurality of people living in very different parts of the world that are also interconnected and so then you look for i, I was just this morning luke was doing his live stream thing and we've got a new guy around named tigrog who is sort of fit in he sat in the chair of a physical reductionist that wants to you know sort of you know wring all the woo out of this little corner and it's like well that that, that ship sailed a long time ago buddy because this corner is made up of people who used to think just like you and have all changed their mind. <laughs> and they've all changed their mind around things like this. Because, you know, and it's it's happening all over the culture. And what's interesting is that there's probably not a an area of our culture that is more salient to us with respect to the reality of I'm not going to use science because actually I was thinking I should make a video about that of technology because what we're really talking about is medical technology, sanitary technology, sort of a whole matrix of technologies that uh, brought widespread public health up a significant degree from a few hundred years ago. And even even a hundred years ago, antibiotics, many of these things. And so on one hand, there's probably no area of life as salient to us that demonstrates the argument of the new atheists or the the people who believe in science as an idol than medical technology yet it is we at the same time because of our faith in it it is being exposed to more and more people on a regular basis our expectations have been raised so high that Okay, so Ross Douthat writes a book about Lyme's disease and discovers that this is not so easily treated. And many of us, I've got a cousin who, um, you know, his his health has been significantly curbed, and at least one of the aspects of that was Lyme's disease. Uh, my sister, um, when she was in, uh, when she was a young adult, she was a the uh, a recruiter at RBC then. Um, now Kuiper College, she got mono and then chronic fatigue and discovered that, oh, the regular doctors could actually do very little for her. So she starts setting out into the frontier of woo and homeopathy and all of these things because the medical doctors don't help. I've got someone in my church right now who he believes he's got a COVID vaccine injury and I think he's got some real grounds for believing that, but he goes to his doctor and his doctor has absolutely nothing for him. And I've been watching him over the last two years degenerate quite significantly, can't get a job. Um, one of my deacons suggested he apply for disability because actually if you apply for disability, then the state really gets interested in what you do and don't have. I've got another person with long COVID. Um, and and what, what we're discovering is that the the medical establishment is bumping into all kinds of things like this you know now we've got this we've got autism and whatever that means and so 
what we're what we're discovering is that this you know then you can look if you dig i don't know if you've seen anything that i've i haven't touched on michael levin too often but like in michael levin studies these flatworms where they're genetically identical they're in some ways sort of immortal they don't age but he wondered why do some have round heads and why do some have arrowheads or two heads or i mean and so then he gets into this the actual the electrical signals that are going on and realizing that when we saw when we discovered genetics we thought oh now suddenly here we have the key we can we can reduce it to these four letters and the sequence of these four letters and then discovering that these two creatures have exactly that same sequence but they have demonstrably different outcomes what is going on and then we begin to discover that oh when you reduce everything down to one variable which is what science tries to do and what technology tries to leverage you basically have dismissed all multivariant questions so then you try to add more variables but every time you add a new variable, we get back to John Verbeke language, you have combinatorial explosiveness. And of course, every chemist knows this because on one hand, you're doing your chemistry and you have all of the, you're doing this math between all of the compounds. But on your paper, you're dealing with pure compounds. But if you're actually doing in the world, you say, well, we're probably not going to have a pure in this test tube, it's not really going to be pure. It just has to be pure enough, which means now suddenly we're into philosophical pragmatism, which is the science of enoughness. <laughs> because we we actually, this is again, combinatorial explosiveness. We actually don't have enough lifetime to worry about purity because we can't get there. Mm -hmm. We can't measure it. We can't experience it. We can't arrive at it. So we have to deal with the science of enoughness, which means then statistics. Mm -hmm. And well, what does that mean with respect to medicine? It means that, well, when we put this, we, we have these group of people that we say have Parkinson's. And then we sort of cl clarify them together. Then we give them L-DOPA because, oh, well, Parkinson's means that they're no longer producing this in the body. So if we introduce that into the body, then it'll go away. No, that didn't happen either. And in fact, some respond to it this way and some respond to it that way. And, you know, on and on and on and on. And then you can go to YouTube and discover that you see these people with Parkinson's, they can barely move. And then you put music on and they can move to music. And it's like, huh? That sounds like woo. <laughs> that sounds like magic. I, I remember seeing this. We had a, a a dear, a dearly loved member of the church who had a significant stroke and had, you know, a, a great degree of aphasia. His wife was horrified when she would take him to church because the word that he said with 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 predictable uh, clarity was bullshit. Because she's like, I can't take him to church, Pastor, because when I wheel him into the church, he says, bullshit, 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 bullshit. You're not supposed to say that in the church. I said, take him to church. It's okay. 
We all understand. He could say bullshit in church. All right. It's 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 all right. There are words that would have been even worse, but <laughs> bullshit, that'll pass, especially in Canada. Canadians don't seem to have as much trouble with that word. But anyway, it was amazing because he could the, the guy couldn't communicate hardly anything orally, but he could sing a hymn from the Blue Psalter mm -hmm. hymnal. Mm -hmm. Like, what's with mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So no, you're very right. And and part of what we have going on in our culture is that when I talk about a recession, I try to use metaphors like mono lake where water recedes because it's a slow process because you're going to see more and more people, more and more, more and more um, professions begin to see this happening around them. And then you just have the psychology of change in people. So more and more people are not only aware of it, but willing to talk openly about it because some of these really massive models that were underneath all of the technological innovation that we have benefited from for the last few centuries, that's changing. And as we push the models, we push the models to their very edge. And what happens when you push a model to its very edge is you start to get beyond the edge and then, you know, Thomas Kuhn, History of Scientific Revolution, I read that in college, it blew my mind. And it was like, oh, well, then you start looking for new models. And of course, what this whole little corner has been about downstream of Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, Jonathan Peugeot, has been actually older models accounted for things that this other model really does quite poorly with. Yeah. So suddenly, older models are reemerging. Yeah. And someone like Nassim Talib would say, yes, they're older. And there's that oldness is not incidental. And yeah. with as as C.S. Lewis said, our, you know, our chronological snobbery, we sort of had this this model that broadly dismissed, broadly preferenced everything new over everything old. But what it doesn't understand is that actually very old things that endure, yeah. you should pay attention to them mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. Something's not going away. And again, this is this is exactly what happened to bring it back to the Christian from church in our own little um, context of misery right now. This is something that all the progressives forgot that, um, you know, all that old stuff like the Heidelberg Catechism and, and all of these old patterns of belief. There's a reason everybody just thought that, um, you know, I remember there was a a woman who came out here and she was part of this. CRC RCA program and she was part of the RCA and she came out here only to discover that a number of church plants in California RCA mostly actually were complementarian and she just said how can this be because didn't the egalitarian mode of inclusion of women in church offices I thought that won the day and any person any person under 60 will automatically be an egalitarian, just like people are thinking that any young person is just automatically going to be flying a rainbow flag. And it's like, you're not really understanding what's going on these days, because while many of us will would agree that the culture was definitely in need for some recalibration with respect to um, a variety of sexual minorities. It doesn't necessarily mean that 
you can just sort of say, oh, that doesn't matter. Actually, it matters because if it didn't matter, we wouldn't be having the issue because people would say, well, I'm attracted to men, but I'll marry a woman anyway. You know, it kind of matters. And you got to have to figure that stuff out. And it's going to be hard. So, so no, this, and that's where, you know, I didn't, I didn't get into what I've gotten into over the last six years because I had this figured out by any means. I just watched Jordan Peterson and I watched what was happening around him. And I said, something's happening there. I don't know what it is, but I have an intuitive sense that it's important. And so I'm going to look more. And that of course set me on this track. Yep. Well, to pick up on a few things there, uh, when McGill Christ talks about the master and the emissary and he talks about how, this part of your brain that the um, right part of your brain that can see the big picture is actually more important because it sees the world more accurately. Um, and it sees it's well, the accurate. Isn't exactly the right word. It sees the world more. It sees the world more truly. Yeah. It's even if less right. accurately in yeah. some cases. Right. You're right about that. Yeah. Um, he, he, he talks about a bird that needs to have a perception of um, both the predator, which may attack it at any time and be able to pick out in the world, the difference between a rock and a seed. And so this kind of broader sense of there might be a predator out there, this openness and to, uh, to the broader world and, and to possibility. And I, and I think about like that, that just functions across so many different areas of study, but particularly science needs both. And, and science is, and, and actually this comes up in this Parkinson's book, but I've noticed it in other places too, where science has gotten stuck in, uh, well, we know our theories are true. So we just need to kind of keep chipping away at uh, and writing papers and and figuring out in medical science figuring out new drugs and and we're not nobody i mean i mean one of the weinstein brothers who will talk about this nobody's kind of stepping back and asking these uh, big questions of well you know maybe uh, these kind of yeah right brain questions of maybe the whole maybe we've got to ask more fundamental questions about how are we viewing the world in the first place and what's possible within the world. And that got me thinking one of my kind of questions in life is why does science emerge in Christian Europe, even though technology emerges in other places, but kind of science as we know it. And I thought, well, I just throw this out there because I can't prove it, but Christianity starts with this kind of group of women and men who see something in the world that does not fit with their preconceived model of how the world works. The guy who was crucified is not dead. And this and so this kind of openness to have your model of the world I mean, put to death, as Paul says, uh, 
is uh, is an openness that uh, that science requires too and to kind of go along and say well well why is that to pay attention to the outlier data to and i think there's an aspect of the i mean this loss of we're going to miss some crc pastors who leave partly because they are the kind of people who are paying attention to the outlier data right like we we need to be able to have that uh, and also then to cultivate practices where we are attuned to that which is why worship is important one of the reasons why worship is important one of the reasons why liturgy is important one of the reasons why we tell the resurrection story at least once a year but hopefully every week um as a reminder that your preconceived notion of how the world works may not be correct Uh, and uh, that our bigger narrative frame constantly needs to be challenged and prodded and and questioned um so that it can align with what i think is is true like that god made the world and god is active in the world and uh, and that kind of thing and and it's and this is you know sort of where it's funny because in the process we bumped into the orthodox large o orthodox and you know it seems orthodoxy on one hand there, what what you just said, you can listen to and say, well, that's this this sort of this sort of um, solvent of skepticism is in Protestantism. It's like, yeah, it is, it is. It's also in orthodoxy, because when they talk about all this apophatic theology, oh, yeah. <laughs> boy, they put the solvent in really early when they put it back there. Yeah, so um yeah this and i and i i think you're right i mean there's a just recently i don't know if you followed you, you've been offline because of exodus 90 yeah. but um you know jordan hall who might not be a name you're terribly familiar with recently became a christian and he you know was right there with john verveke in terms of the early days of a religion that's not a religion and Jordan Hall in one of the podcasts now, because now everybody's beating and everybody from his old community is beating a path to his door, saying, "You did what? You know what? <laughs> you did what, Jordan?" <laughs> and and he's kind of saying, "I found the religion that's not a religion," mm-hmm. because and that points to exactly what you just said right there, that there. And and even in our Protestant creeds, God is ineffable. Well, what do we mean by that? This whole Calvinist, um, this whole anti-idolatry Calvinism that says you you have to keep, you have to really keep be careful about idols. And so we, you know, we got really good about not putting pictures in our church. And sometimes we're not anywhere near as good as not. Um, holding up textual idols mm-hmm. and and keeping the confessions from becoming idols. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's that, it's that. And again, you can go back to Jordan Peterson, Chaos and Order. Uh, you can look at it, McGilchrist, Master and His Emissary. I recently picked up um, Pascal's Pensies. And when mm-hmm. he talks about it in the first of it, it's like, holy cow. And and later with, with Pascal, the spirit of finesse and the spirit of geometry. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
Hey, McGilchrist, McGilchrist is no dummy. And there's a reason his book is, his two books are this fat. Because we've been, we've been dealing with this for a long time and pointing to it. But, but even just pointing to the dynamic doesn't mean you escape it. Mm-hmm. You just say, oh, there's the dynamic. Okay. But even that dynamic, you know, you, you need it. All instantiations need to be instantiated. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they don't work in this world, even though, and this probably has some connection to the age of decay, none of our instantiations endure mm-hmm. because, you know, they're not, they're not the source of the, all those instantiations. Like love, love is worth saving. I don't know love. Now encompasses everything. Does it not? It's all there is. It's all there is. You choose survival, social, wisdom, or heart. See, you've given yourself up. But this is the most powerful thing that can be done. Surrender. See, and love is an act of surrender to another person. Total abandonment. I give myself. Take do anything you like with me. So, and that's quite mad. So we come to the strange conclusion that in madness lies sanity.